You're listening to Win Win, an entrepreneurial community with your host, Ben Wolf. And welcome to the Win Win podcast. This is Ben Wolf, as always, your host. I am very happy to introduce our guest today, who is going to talk about how to be the disruptive successor in a family business. Uh, our guest today founded the Gold Hill Group, which provides coaching to multi generational family business owners of construction, manufacturing, and service businesses. Uh, he's the author of Disruptive Successor, a guide for driving growth in your family business. We'll put the link of, uh, for Amazon on, uh, on the description here. And you can find out more about him at thegoldhillgroup.com. And with that, I give you Jonathan Goldhill. Welcome, Jonathan. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me on the show today. Well, I appreciate you making the time for this conversation. And I guess I would love it if you can uh, introduce our conversation with you by giving people a little context. Sure. How did, you know, a little two-minute background in terms of how you got, you know, where you came from and how you got to be doing what you're doing now and what we're talking about now. That's great. Well, um, so my mother and father came from Great Neck, New York, not far from where you live yes, in our yes, base. Long Island. And uh, my grandfather and his two brothers and, and their father built a very large clothing manufacturing company that was based out of Philadelphia, headquartered in Manhattan. And they built a, probably the largest private label men's suit manufacturing company in the country. And I didn't know a whole lot about it growing up as a kid. And actually, the business was sold um, when I was only 11 years old. But when I used to ask my mom, I'm like, so who works in the family business? And she said, no, the question really is, is who doesn't work in the family business? So every family member worked in the family business. And so I grew up with this kind of legacy of this very large, very successful family business that my grandfather seemed enormously wealthy and very philanthropic and he always had like he had the best tickets to the Mets games, for instance, and because he, he knew the owner. And so my story was that I would have been a fourth generation family business member had the business stayed around. But the third generation family business members, my dad being one of them, and he was a son in law. He died very young, 1960. I was two. He was 35. Mm. And my uncle, who was also a son-in-law, um, was in the business. But there really wasn't a strong third generation to carry the torch. And so when I was 20, I, I, I went after like my own version of freedom. I moved to California. And uh, 10 years, I was involved in some nonprofit and some philanthropic do-good kind of stuff and organizing. And then ultimately went back to business school after I had a art and clothing company that I would say was a reasonable failure. Um, it sent me get to get an MBA and in entrepreneurship from the University of Southern California. And ever since I came out of there, I realized I'm really interested by entrepreneurs and I want to coach and consult these folks. And then I started realizing that they were mostly family businesses and that I really understood the dynamics of families and being able to communicate to the different generations. And so for 30 years, I've been coaching, consulting, training, advising, and financing small and family businesses. That's my story. So let me ask you this. So like, how many family businesses are there in the United States? So it's the research varies depending upon who does it. Um, so family businesses 
employ 60% of the US workforce and create like 80% of all new jobs. And so it's probably arguable that two thirds or more of all businesses in the United States are family businesses. Now, you know, how many businesses that is in terms of numbers? I don't know, but that's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of family businesses. Now, what's the usual definition of understanding what is even a family business? I mean, is it just somebody that their brother works in their company or like it, what is what is a family business? Yeah. So, you know, the usual definition is any business with two or more family members that operate the company and have a majority of the ownership or control lies within the family. So, you know, think about the data, right? I mean, we used to say that the 96% of all businesses are under a million dollars. Most of them are providing locally needed goods and services. Think of your, your dry cleaning, you know, your local restaurant, your, you know, all the service businesses that you go out and run your errands every day. And most of those are family businesses, their mom and pop, their father and son. I mean, think of a, can you think of a plumbing company that doesn't have and sons as they're <laughs> like, you know, unless they're like Mike Diamond, but like, it's just, it's so common for these businesses to be family businesses. And yet we take them for granted and we don't think of them as large, successful family businesses, but there are some very large family businesses, i.e. craft, i.e. Walmart. Um, <laughs> Which one? Isn't Walmart. Yeah. And there's a ton of those. Ford. Those are still a lot of, I think the research. Coke Brothers. What is it? Tons. But actually, if you did the research on publicly traded companies, I think you'd find a, a very large percentage of them are also family owner controlled. So uh, let me ask you this. And I, I guess what I'm trying to do here with some of these questions is sort of set sort of a groundwork or just sort of set a background for this conversation, understand yep. the impact of it. But what are the statistics or numbers related to success of people taking family businesses, you know, generation to generation? Yeah. Do we have yeah. any numbers about that? I do. And I get this from Deloitte. They did some research a handful of years back and uh, anecdotally it, it, it fit with the research that I've just done from experience, but so 70% of family business owners want to pass their business on to the next generation, but the research suggests that only 30% last into the second generation, 12% remi remain viable into the third generation, and only 3% operate into the fourth generation and beyond. So, you know, two thirds of them don't make it to the next generation. Right. Wow. That is, yeah, that is, that is remarkable. Okay. So with that background and kind of knowing the multi-generational low success rate for, you know, successfully, you know, growing and adapting and, and surviving and thriving a family business through the generations, I guess what, what I would ask is, you know, if someone is a successor, however they got there and they're, they're running a family business, uh, second, third, fourth generation, whatever it is, uh, what are some of the most important things that they need to be thinking about doing differently uh, or better than what was done before uh, if they do want to be successful and not and be more the exception than, than the majority that are not not continuing multi-generational? Yeah. Well, so let me steal a sentence from the back cover of my book and then answer your question, which is that the dwindling, it said, I wrote the dwindling chances of success 
are due in large part to the issues unique to family businesses that are often wrapped up in a tightly woven knot of unspoken plans. And so the antidote to that is what they should be doing, you know, um, and let me get to that. So Peter Drucker, he said that because the purpose of a business, I'm sure you know this quote, Ben, because the purpose of the business is to create a customer, the business enterprise has only two and only two basic functions, marketing and innovation. Marketing and innovation produce results, all the rest are costs. And so I think he got that right, but not completely right when it comes to a family business because the next generation leaders need to develop and demonstrate their leadership and communication skills. And so what I talk about in that tightly woven knot of unspoken plans is there isn't a communic there isn't communication around the transition from a predecessor to the next generation leader. And so the tips for a smooth succession, especially to millennial, which are most of my clients, is to develop a communication or meeting rhythm with the outgoing family members or generation and the employees, right? People need to feel safe. That's the job of the CEO is culture building activities. Um, they need to rework the culture to reflect the new vision and purpose that the next generation leader has, because it's probably not the same purpose that the former generation. I mean, most of my clients, um, their parents started the business just to put food on the table. Um, if they were thinking bigger, they were like, we want to be so successful. We maybe have a city home and a country home, you know, we can go hiking or skiing or, or trout fishing or whatever their thing is. But I heard, I heard about apartments in the Lower East Side when they were, uh, they were like, you have a bathroom in your own apartment that's not shared with your neighbors. Right. Exactly. Like that was a that, sign of luxury at one point. Yeah. And like, that's how my grandparents, um, they grew up like on Hester street in the lower East side. And that was, you know, that was reflected of that, of that era. Then they got successful and they moved out to great neck and then Port Washington and then ultimately Sands point. Um, so these are, you know, I guess high net worth, wealthy communities, but like, so they need to develop this communication and a meeting rhythm. And I think this is what so ties in so nicely with EOS and the work that you're doing and the work that I do with my clients, which is that they start to set up meeting rhythms where maybe they're using, like I, we use a software that's compatible with running your level 10 meetings. And in that software, they establish rocks. They could even have a, a, a attraction plan with one year and 90 day goals and track to do's and, and even report a set of KPIs or metrics. So in a family business where you need to transition from one generation to the next, why not use the same type of meeting rhythm and structure and set a default agenda and start talking about the topics that are important for the next generation's ascension to the leadership. Or if the next generation leader is truly a disruptive successor, it's a chance for them to share their vision of where they like to see the business going over the next, you know, five, 10, whatever their, you know, year period that they're looking at, what their big, hairy, audacious goal is. And for the older generation to kind of get with the program and start to see, okay, my kid's really got a vision for where he's taking this business. And I, I trust his leadership and his management. And because it's, 
you know, it's this passing the, the baton from one generation to the next that makes it so difficult. And what we are doing, I'm saying we, like you and myself, we're providing or giving them a framework for having these conversations and discussions. And so if you don't mind, I'll, I'll just keep sharing. Like one of my clients actually wrote me this testimonial and it was specifically around uh, the, you know, pre working with me and after. And they said like before John, we, we did have family weekly family meetings, but they didn't start on time. It was easy for someone to miss them and just putting a hard start and stop time to the meetings made them easier to attend and more enjoyable knowing that there was an agenda and we had to stick to it. Plus, when someone did miss a meeting, there was a recap that was sent out that allowed everyone to stay on the same page. And he said, this was like a big win. It's been, you know, the big win has been all the time we have gotten back by making our meetings razor sharp where we tackle hard issues quickly and efficiently. Decisions are made, to-dos are established, and accountability is visible to all. And it only took about right. two months for everyone to buy into the program and start really using all the tools available. I mean, what a great story that is. And this is a company that's got five family members, two generations, father and mother and three children. And, uh, you know, it's it's amazing to see the transition that's happened in the nine months that we've been working together where the father, like, doesn't even go into the office now four and a half days a week it goes in when he wants. It's incredible. Let's freedom. take a, let's yeah. take a business like that. Like before you came in there, right. We, you, you talked in that, that phrase you used was very interesting. Uh, uh, unspoken plans, like a knot yeah. of unspoken plans. Yeah. What do you mean by unspoken plans? What, what, what are some examples of people to understand what you mean by that? What are some unspoken plans that people have or in this business? Like what were some of the unspoken plans that different people had? Okay. So there are unspoken plans about, so Ben, what's your compensation going to be for this job that you're going to be doing? And um, what do I expect from you as far as being like stepping into the leadership role? Like, am I going to run this business from from until I die? And, and then am I going to run it from the grave? Like, what's the transition of ownership, transition of decision-making power, transition of leadership and leadership styles? All of this stuff becomes spoken when someone right. like myself brings this to the forefront, like, but until the then, yeah, until then people are, they're just maybe hiring their child or their niece or their son or daughter-in-law and just yeah. never really specifying how is this transition supposed to take place? What exactly is your job? How much yeah. are you getting paid? Like, like any other job or like any other person that you would hire. Yeah. I mean, so there's a lack of transparency in a lot of the, transition because there's there's no real discussion around what does succession look like um there's no real articulation of well what skills do you need to learn to be a leader and you know probably today more so than ever the next generation leader is, is maybe studying leadership more than the predecessor studied leadership there's more books on the subject there's more you know ted talks more youtube videos more coaches to mentor these individuals um, and so the transition of leadership might go from one of being a command and control style leadership where the father ruled with a pretty heavy, you know, an, an iron fist. And the son is like, no, we need to be more consensus building. We need to be more open 
maybe open book or um so there's just there's a really big gap in the generations and and to have some communication around what this gap looks like and how to close it and um, how to be more transparent you know time has to be taken to train and mentor the future successors and the the next generation leader needs to be really respectful of the history and the success that their forefathers or mothers brought to the business because it's oftentimes that they have technical knowledge that's way beyond what the younger person uh, you know knows about the background of you know how to make things how to produce things how to sell things and yet mm -hmm. they the younger person has to introduce the older person to like there are changes in the way we're doing things today. You know, we're using technology and technology is a huge, there's a huge void in family businesses around their readiness and using of technology. And the younger generation has to carry that torch. So the, right. there's a lot to parse out here. Right. And and one of the things you, you one of the things you talk and speak about is the seven P's that you say are necessary for a successor who has taken over their family business yep. to grow, you know, let's say it's anywhere between 10 to two X of their current revenue. So if you don't mind sharing, like, I guess, what are those seven P's? Sure. Uh, or, you know, and maybe you talk about one of them or maybe, maybe one or two of them about, you know, what's the first or most important that people need to be, you know, that, that you find that people typically need to tackle and, and how they could you know go about doing that on their own. Yeah, that's great. Um, so let me go over what the seven P's are there. Uh, there's a framework that I put together, you know, I guess kind of similar EOS has six components that you need to pull together. And so my framework is, is kind of looks similar, like a wheel like that. And the, the P's are purpose, plan, products or services, people, priorities, processes, and performance. And so which one, should be tackled first and are, are the most important. So, you know, any of them could be tackled first and any of them could be argued to be most important. And I think it depends on case by case. My, I, I, I created purpose and plan to be number one and number two, and then people and priorities and, and products was in there as a mix. But I think that the next generation leader has to be clear on what their purpose is and I, in purpose, I also talk about what, you know, what are the core values? Because I think it's all about creating the culture. Um, but, you know, but then I'm going to contradict myself by saying that once I start working with a leadership team, I think one of the first things I tell them in the first offsite is that the, the people is the most important element of what we're going to be working on during the first year. And we're probably all going to be reading Pat Lencioni's, you know, the five dysfunctions of a team, because if we don't get the people right, like it doesn't matter, you're not going to be able to execute on anything really that well. Right. Regardless so, of the plan or whatever purpose you articulate. Yeah. But, you know, I was reflecting as I thought about this question, I was thinking about one of my real success stories that I talk about in the book. And uh, and, and I can be public about this because he's been pretty public, but Justin White of K&D Landscaping. Um, started working with me one-on-one -on -one in 2015 when he was just taking over the leadership role of his family's business. And so we worked a lot on performance, that particular P, where he was really starting to measure performance, both with leading indicators and lagging indicators. And the lagging indicators being things like, you know, what's your profitability and what's your balance sheet, your, 
you know, your, uh, your bank balance look like and what your receivables and payables and leading indicators like how many leads have you generated and what percent are you closing and, you know, what's the average ticket size. And so, because he wasn't privy to that kind of stuff because he was like VP production construction division mm-hmm. and his mother ran the books and, and not very well. I think we might, she might agree with that um, because a lot of husband and wife businesses, the wife gets thrown, the, the husband's going out and, you know, selling jobs and, and managing the construction production of those jobs. And the wife has to learn bookkeeping, but she's never been formally trained. And so Focusing on the performance in the P's was really important. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the an inflection point in terms of change in his business was when we nailed the purpose. And it took us a full year. Mm-hmm. We were starting to ask the question of, you know, so why are, why are we doing this? Why do you want to 10X the business? And at some point, we came up with a BHAG to grow to be 30 million by 2030. And then it was 300 employees by 2030. And they're halfway there, by the way, from starting from a million and a half with me. So, so pretty good. But like, once we got the why, which we came up with was raise the bar, that why in my mind was an inflection point, because Mm. they drove that why into the business, into everything they did into their work and visibility in the community, and into their hiring process and their onboarding and Everything was about like raise the bar, raise the bar in the industry, raise the bar in the business. And I I noticed like the hockey stick just started getting steeper and steeper going up in terms of revenues and profitability because it was all about like really having clear purpose and why. So I think that, you know, we could argue that any of those P's you could start with, I think having a plan, having clear purpose having the right people, you know, knowing your priorities. It's, it's like, you know, we always say, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? You got to start with probably where your weakest area is and start developing that. And for most people, it's going to be about developing their leadership. And when you develop as a leader, leadership, you mean skills or the leadership people team, leadership skills. First, you have to develop your own leadership and your, you know, you have to grow yourself first before you can grow other people. Um, and then you have to make sure, do you have the right people on the team and develop their leadership and get, you know, get out of the way. Right. Right. Would you consider that when you talk about developing your own leadership skills or your team's leadership skills, would you consider that under the people category of those seven? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, the most chapter in my book, I think I might have two or three that are on just the people element because it's so hard to get that right. And it's such yeah. a critical element. It, it's the most critical element, you know, in, yeah. in business. Now, I, you know, I, I could certainly echo that in terms of my own experience and, and you know, in my team's experience, the fractional COOs at Wolf's Edge Integrators is that, you know, our, our biggest focus, the first few quarters at least, is getting the right people in the right seats of the leadership team. It's getting everybody to be the right people because until we get the right people, and you could have the greatest processes, the greatest data, the greatest plan, the greatest strategy, uh, you know, the greatest systems, uh, you know, the greatest product. It's not going to, it's not going to get anywhere if, if you don't have the right people executing on it. You know, people that are, can do their jobs well on a consistent basis and who, as you said, you know, embody the core values, uh, you know, embody, of the organization. They exhibit the behaviors that are valued there. Yeah. Uh, you don't have that, nothing else is going to work. 
Yeah. So um, about five, six, maybe seven years ago, I, um, I was newly certified in the Rockefeller habits, which is uh, uh, scaling up, scaling up program. Then it was called gazelles. And, and uh, I came into contact with an e-commerce company. It was uh, um, African-American uh, started by the daughter who was employing everyone in her family. And when they came to me, they were, I mean, clearly a family business, two generations, five family members, been in operations three years, growing 10th X year over year. But even with that success, their team was only growing more and more splintered by unspoken, unspoken feuds and hidden grudges. These are the words of the, of the, of the CEO. Oof. And that's when they contacted me. And that's when I started facilitating some executive team meetings to try and iron out the wrinkles that were keeping them from communicating with each other. We did disc surveys or disc assessments where we reviewed our disc profiles. That was a tearjerker. We had some really difficult conversations uh, in this family where, you know, one of the sons felt like he was contributing a lot more value and uh, we had to iron out that and come up with a, a comp package to help him exit the business with a half a million dollar exit in a startup you know, business. Oof. Seemed pretty painful. But once we got these conversations out in the open and once they started implementing the Rockefeller habits and the scaling up principles, I, their business improved so much. It was really dramatic. Wow. Well, last question on that. You you mentioned when they did the disc profiles with each yeah. other that it was a tearjerker. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Yeah, you know, it's hard to remember exactly what what transpired, but uh um there were some heated conversations where one of the family members stormed out of the room of a two-day, like in the first half day, and basically said like, I'm done with this. I don't, I don't even want to work in this business. I, you know, I'm taking all my stuff and my, you know, what I've brought to this, and I'm going to, I'm going to do my own thing. And so a tearjerker, meaning that it was tearing the family apart and it was upsetting. There was a lot of emotions and bringing, I, I've never had anyone storm out of a, of a, an all day, you know, a two day planning session. So it was challenging. How did, how did the room. disc, how did the disc bring that out? I think they started to recognize that their behavioral profiles and preferences were different and they could start to respect each other's process for thinking and decision-making. And I think just sharing the areas that they needed to make improvement in started to recognize their, their shortcomings and I, it made more obvious things that some companies might intuitively understand, some families might intuitively understand, and others had blinders to it. I think this family had some blinders to it. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, I definitely see that. I actually had a conversation this week with, uh, you know, with uh, with a leadership team member and a uh, and a trusted advisor or coach that that business was working with, and. The, the the leadership team member like felt like this trusted advisor was like trying to like nitpick at the things that they said and like to 
demonstrate dominance. That was how it was interpreted. But then with more time and exposure, they came to realize that, no, that person is just like an engineer brain. That's the kind of brain this person has. Like an I mean, I don't know what that would be in disc, but like they're just yeah. more of an, an engineer That'd brain. That'd be a high C. So they're just like, you know, they just, they, they, they see the something, they just see the technical things and they just focus on that. It's just because that's the way their brain works. They're not trying to demonstrate dominance. They just, yeah. like, that's just the type of thinking and brain that they have. Yeah. And, you know, and it was just like, when you understand where people are coming from, like with the disc tools that you use, um, it, it could just make a big difference in terms of not being offended by things that other people do or thinking that they're intentionally trying to do something negative to you. But, you know, come to realize that they're just being who they are. You know, they're, they're just, they think the way they think. It's different from the way you, th you think. So you interpret it in light of if you did that, what would it mean? But that's they're not you. They have a different type of brain. So it's, yeah. like, it's, like, it's yeah. an interesting tool. I have a client. It's a family business. And there are three people who are on the leadership team that are all in the engineering and software and technology kind of the divisions, if you will, of the company. So these three people are all what you would disc would profile as high C. Um, we, I've not done disc with them. So it's not the importance or significance of disc per se versus another assessment. They were using predictive index and it was really easy for me to see and for the rest of the team to see that these three people like sit on top of each other in the wheel on the predictive index, which means that there's no wonder that they might have stylistic differences. That doesn't mean they're going to agree on everything. And so most of the tension, most of the fighting, most of the inefficient practices on this team and this people in this company is these three people who are in mm -hmm. engineering software and, you know, the owner of the company that are conflicting with each other. And so one you know, a good step was for them to start to recognize their similarities and their differences and use some different assessments to help them figure that out. And then for them to be communicating with each other instead of it being a top down one person to the next person to the other person, like mm -hmm. guys start getting into the room and have your same page meetings, the three of you every week and talk about the issues. So, you know, it was taking a variation of what EOS is teaching with the same page meeting between the visionary and the integrator. I'm saying like, you basically have like a visionary and integrator and you have another integrator, like guys get into the same room every week and talk about, okay, what are we going to do this week? What are we going to do? You know, where are we going? What are the hiccups? What are the issues? Right. So, so important. Nice. Yeah, and I appreciate it. I appreciate you making the time for this, sharing yeah. the seven P's and how people can... Uh, kind of break that pattern of, I think you said 3% of uh, family businesses make it to the fourth generation. Right. Uh, so, you know, give some tools for people to uh, learn how to not be in that category, but to to make a difference and, and be a disruptive successor. Again, they can get your book called Disruptive Successor, uh, thegoldhillgroup.com. It's thegoldhillgroup.com, right? Did I got that right? Correct. The Gold yeah, thegoldhillgroup.com. I truly appreciate you making the time and having the conversation. And thank you. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate it. My pleasure. And everybody else, we'll see you on the other side. Thank you. You're listening to Win Win, an entrepreneurial community with your host, Ben Wolf.